It was on the 13th of December. It was on the Monday. It was five years to the day. Five years, five, fifth anniversary. Then we went down. We took the organs out, brought them home. Brought them down. We buried, buried them. Um, I remember getting out of the car, and a friend of mine at home that dubbed the grave asked me, "What size is it?" Because he wasn't sure what size, whether he dug it big enough or. I just I told him it was just a little thing you fit in the palm, two hands. Just a small little box, not even a foot square. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable. The loving memory of Michael Riley, and that's what we've come here for. Come you who my father has blessed, says the Lord. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. Let us pray for Michael and entrust him to the care of our loving God. To you, O Lord, we humbly entrust Michael, so precious in your sight. Take him into your arms and welcome him into paradise, where there will be no sorrow, no weeping, no pain, but the fullness of peace and joy with your Son and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. Last year, the revelation that organs of deceased children were being retained after post-mortem at Our Lady's Hospital for Sick Children in Crumlin gave rise to anguish and pain for many bereaved parents around the country. The idea that organ removal had occurred without their consent or knowledge has been a source of considerable anger and has been viewed by many parents, such as Bernard O'Reilly, with bewilderment. By some, it is seen as a betrayal of their children in death, by the very hospital that cared for them so well in life. Coming on foot of similar revelations in relation to British hospitals in Bristol and Liverpool, Mairead Carey was the first journalist to write about the existence of a similar state of affairs in an Irish hospital. Yeah, I heard the story um, late in the summer and to be honest I found it quite incredible at the start and um, I went to the Department of Health sources that I have and I... Um, asked them to confirm it and I was put, eventually put in touch with Michael McDermott. Um, so the story was run in Ireland on Sunday where I was working at the time. And then the first week of the story breaking, was, it, was very, it was very much ignored really in the first week. Um, the second week, uh, Charlotte Yates contacted me and um, we met and did an interview. And, and again, we ran it uh, in Ireland on Sunday. And it got very, very little coverage. Um, until a couple of months later, um, when the story of the hospital in Liverpool broke, um, it was reported that it had never happened in Ireland and that it couldn't happen in Ireland. And um, I went back to Charlotte and at that stage she had been contacted by a number of other families. And one Sunday afternoon I sat down with three families for a very harrowing five hours uh, listening to their stories of their children and how they discovered that the organs of their children had been retained in the hospital, um, in one case for over four years. Margaret McKeever, Fanula O'Reilly and Charlotte Yates are three mothers whose children were treated and died in Our Lady's Hospital. In each case, the children's bodies underwent a post-mortem examination in the course of which organs were removed without their parents' knowledge or consent. These organs were subsequently either incinerated or stored at the hospital. Spurred on by their desire to discover exactly how this could have happened to their children and to prevent the possibility of it happening again in the future, the women have formed a group called Parents for Justice. 
Margaret McKeever lost her daughter Sinead some years ago. They removed her heart and when we asked how long they had kept it, he said 12 months. And then they incinerated it. To think that my child didn't even get the dignity of her heart being buried with her body is very hard to cope with, especially her heart. She fought so long to keep it in her body. And we as a family went through so much, minding her for those 14 years. I mean, myself and my husband take some credit for her living to 14 and a half years as well. I mean, I would have been the one that would have been up for her at night time, mind her in between the hospital visits. Uh, it's, it's, just a, it's a very painful thing to deal with. The extent of the pain, you could never. It's only when you're talking to another mother that this has happened to. But to talk to anybody else that it hasn't happened to, it's very hard to get the pain across, you know. And if anything, I, I would say to the, to the staff in the hospital, the anger we have is because of the pain we have and the not known and the needed to know the answers to what we're asking you. Michael came into this world against all hopes and against the expectations of everybody at 4.20 on Wednesday, the 20th of July, 1994. And that has been one of the crowning moments in my lifetime. This child was born alive. Okay, he was blue and he was struggling from that very instant, but he was born alive. And the paediatricians were all gathered in the room um, at the bottom of the bed. It was a very, very high-tech birth. It was a, a very, very tense final ten minutes. But they gave this child to me to hold and I hugged that tiny little body into mine and I truly never wanted to let that go. And I tried to imprint every facial feature, the contour of his body. I was trying to make memories for a lifetime for myself and for Bernard at that point. Fanula O'Reilly, mother of baby Michael. And, you know, he survived and the next day came and the next day came and the cardiology team continued to do their assessments and they were so frank and so honest with us throughout and we were told that the prognosis was not good, that in addition to the undeveloped left side of his heart, there were multiple holes throughout uh, the front, the back, the wall of his heart. He had irregular rhythms, irregular heart rhythms. Um, so he had an awful lot to encounter in his very short life. Well, Lorraine was born in, in 79. She was born with a congenital heart defect, but we didn't find out for about seven weeks. Um, she eventually went into Our Lady, uh, no, Crumlin, our Coombe, and was transferred to Our Lady's Hospital in Crumlin. She was there for four and a half months and she had corrective surgery, temporary corrective surgery. She came home then and she was in and out with infections and all that sort of stuff. She also had corrective surgery again in when she was two and a half. But all this time, like she would be back every few months to Our Lady's Hospital to see the cardiologist for checkups, and she was on an awful lot of medication. But she was a real happy little child. She actually thought, her little friend lives next door, and she actually thought all children had all this medicine and all children went to see her doctor at Our Lady's. She thought that was normal. Charlotte Yates is the mother of Lorraine, who died when she was five years old. Um... In June that year, in 85, the sports day was on. And she wanted to go to the sports day. And the field is adjacent to the school. So 
off we went to watch her friends running and their egg race and their potato race and all the rest of it, you know. She couldn't run, she couldn't do any of that. So we just stood and she held my hand and we watched all of this and she enjoyed it and she seemed in good form, yeah. She st- well, I was going to leave and come back home and go back to collect her when the school was finished, but she got very, very upset. So on the way home, um, we were practically home, we were just around the corner actually, and I'd been carrying her because she was so tired. So I put her down to walk a little bit and I turned around the corner and next of all I heard her saying, oh, mammy, and that was it. I caught her as she fell. They said she'd had a heart attack. They brought her up to intensive care and they put her on a ventilator. And a nurse came in, I think it was the sister of the ward, came in and said things are not looking too good. We're getting a cardiologist back in. He arrived. We heard him belting up the stairs. And I kind of felt once he was there, because I trusted these people so much, I felt once he's there, he's going to make her well. So she was there on the ventilator until quarter to ten that night when she took a second heart attack and died on the ventilator without regaining consciousness. Maybe an hour after, the cardiologist came to us and said, we're doing a post-mortem, and I said, oh, no, you're not. And he said, well, look, she's only been in the hospital a few hours. Really, we don't have to tell you. We are doing it. It's a legal thing, and it has to be done. It'll be a partial post-mortem. So I asked him, would he be there? He said he would, and I said, well, look... You've always minded her. Will you mind her for me now and don't let anybody hurt her and take care of her? So he said he would. So that was it. We, we left the hospital. It was a grey September morning. It was wet and it was Monday. And the kids didn't want to go off to school. It was just one of those horrible Mondays. And he was being changed and he smiled. And just to see that smile... That was the most glorious moment. I had thought like that my joy was complete the minute this child was born and had lived, but this was absolutely beyond my wildest dreams. And he smiled and he continued to smile throughout that day and he continued to smile throughout the rest of his life. But um, the intestinal condition recurred once more for the third time and he was admitted to Our Ladies again. And this time... We were all so thankful the condition hadn't advanced to a life-threatening stage. And he was deemed fit enough to undergo some exploratory surgery to see if the condition could be resolved and um, treated once and for all so that it wouldn't recur again. We kissed Michael goodbye at the door and um, totally and fully expected to see him back within the hour. You know, his little bed was being prepared in St Pat's Ward and I was told to bring all his uh, toys and all his clothes and bed linen and whatever over there and that we'd be called back to the theatre or to the ward um, when he was back, when he was when his surgery was completed. And um, I heard my voice being called over the tannoy system, over the PA system in the hospital to return to the ward. And I thought in my f- foolishness maybe that um, he had come out of surgery sooner than was expected. But um, when I saw the chaplain and the ward sister advancing I just knew, they didn't have to say anything, I just, I knew, I knew by the chaplain's face and the anaesthetist came out and the anaesthetist was just so distraught, he was almost incoherent and I know this sounds a very strange thing to say but I found great comfort in the fact that these people felt so much for my child and for his condition that they were so distressed on a personal level for the fact that his life was now in extreme danger. that My child really, really mattered to these people. And he wasn't just a number or another case. He really mattered. And the anaesthetist said, 
Michael's heart had arrested twice during the surgery and that the cardiac surgeons were now there and that they had resuscitated him twice before that and that as the anaesthetist was coming out to speak with me his heart had arrested a third time and that they had now opened his chest and that they were manually massaging the heart and pumping it with their own hands and that it didn't look good, that they weren't having much success and even if they did, that his heart had been stopped for I don't, I can't remember what lengths of time, but long enough to cause considerable brain damage. And they said if they got his heart going again, they'd put him on life support and bring him into the intensive care, but that the life support would have to be inevitably switched off, that we'd have time to come to terms with the condition and say our goodbyes, but that was never to be. Michael was never resuscitated, and Michael died at 10 to 8 on the 13th of December, Lord, in our grief, we call upon your mercy. Open your ears to our prayers. And one day unite us again with Michael, who we firmly trust already enjoys eternal life in your kingdom. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. And we said, why would the post-mortem be needed? And they said, by law it was needed as he had died within 24 hours of admission and it would establish the cause of death and we would get we would see how effective his surgery had been and you know in what condition his heart was so um, we knew that the post-mortem was going to be carried out the next morning so um, we we went into the hospital and we waited for the post-mortem to be completed and we they told us then that his his little body was back in the mortuary and one of the nurses from St. Teresa's was there and she said now there's going to be a lot of bandaging there might be some fresh blood on the bandaging she said I can wash him and dress him or you can do it or we can both do it and I said is my baby's body intact and that's the only word I could use at that point and I remember this with crystal clarity and I didn't mean had my baby's heart and lungs been removed. I had no reason to even suspect that such a thing might have happened. But I did know that tissue might be removed, and I thought that might be a tiny bit of the heart that the surgery had been performed on, or that it might be the diseased intestine which had been causing all the problems for so long. And she said, your baby is going out of the world with all the bits and bobs he came into it with. And I remember that distinctly. Uh, the process of post-mortem examination is still necessary in many cases to establish the cause of death um, in adults or in children. It remains one of the greatest facilities we have for understanding the cause of death and therefore for trying to improve practices in the future to prevent deaths with similar conditions. The need to retain organs has got to do with the method by which Uh, the material is prepared for examination at a microscopic level and this demands fixation um, or preparation in certain ways before before the tissue can be studied at a microscopic level and this can take from days to weeks depending on the procedure that is to be carried out. Professor Brendan Drum is the Senior Consultant in Paediatrics at Our Ladies Hospital for Sick Children. 
um, this is not a pleasant procedure. And yet, the importance of the post-mortem examination uh, to the future care of individuals born with similar conditions cannot be overemphasized. I think people working in the area of pediatric cardiology, for instance, and, and cardiovascular surgery would argue vehemently that post-mortems have been the single biggest issue in terms of massive improvement we've seen in the care of congenital heart disease and, and in the improved survival, which is now um, excellent for a lot of these children. It's just seen as a routine practice amongst pathologists um, and there's no, you know, um, as far as they're concerned, they're dealing with organs, they're not dealing with children. Professor Drum goes on to explain what happened at Our Lady's Hospital in the past and the measures the hospital has put in place to alleviate the situation. Up until um, the mid-1990s, um, 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 hospitals in Ireland uh, sent organs for incineration at hospital incineration units um, within this country. The Environmental Protection Agency has, during the 1990s, effectively closed all Irish um, hospital incineratory incineration units. This resulted in a situation where, from Irish hospitals in general, organs actually had to be moved to Belgium for incineration. The ho- practice at this hospital um, back in 1997, when the incinerator at this hospital was closed, was to conform with that national practice of sending organs to Belgium. In late 1997, we saw the appointment of a new pathologist, Dr. McDermott, at this hospital. When he became aware of the fact that organs were actually being sent to Belgium for incineration, he adopted the view at that stage that this was not proper and that it might actually be a cause of concern for parents. But it was left with the problem that there was no facility for such incineration in Ireland. He therefore uh, took steps to stop the removal of organs from Our Lady's Hospital to Belgium for incineration and this has resulted in the situation where organs were actually retained consistently between 1997 and 1999. If families have made contact with the hospital, those organs clearly are returned um, to to the families now for, um, for, for burial. If this whole controversy hadn't blown up, I presume Uh, we would have probably proceeded to a situation where once an incineration facility became available in Ireland that that would have been used. Certainly now uh, some parents have made contact with the hospital, and indeed many parents have, and have chosen to um, have these these organs returned to the family for burial. However, I also have to stress, because it is important, that families have also contacted the hospital specifically requesting that while they have become aware of this controversy, that they were determined that the hospital should not make contact with them in relation to any organs that were retained, as they saw this as becoming a significant source of, shall I say, reopened grief for them as a family. So there are different sides to this problem now in terms of how one deals with organs that are retained. People didn't know quite what to make of it. Um, and they w- were confused. They weren't. They weren't sure whether they were talking, for example, about organs being taken and being given um, to children, if you like, who needed them in terms of donations, or the. You know, they weren't. They weren't. They couldn't grasp the idea that the organs were just removed and just basically sat on shelves for for years on end. There was no sort of 
it's very difficult. It was a very horrific story, and it was extremely difficult to believe that it could happen and that it could happen, um, and could still be happening. That it wasn't something that happened back in the forties or the fifties. That that doctors, if you like, were still continuing this practice. I know in my own case, my sister um, was killed in an accident, and I've spoken to my mother since about it. She simply doesn't want to know. Uh, as far as she was concerned, Noretta's organs wouldn't be, um, aren't Noretta. Charlotte Yates did not fall into this camp, however. She was one of the first parents to get wind of the fact that organs were being retained in Our Lady's Hospital and felt compelled to follow up on her intuition. But we heard nothing, nothing from Crumlin at all until February this year, the 12th of February, and when I was watching the news and um, I saw the article about the Bristol Heart children. And the whole night I sat here and I thought, There's, they couldn't possibly be doing that out here. They couldn't. But next morning I rang Crumlin and I asked for the patient service officer. She came on the line and she said, I said, what was the procedure? She told me she wasn't medically qualified to talk to me, but she would get somebody in 10 minutes to ring me back. That was probably 10 o'clock. Half past 12, I rang our ladies and asked for her again. She was in a meeting. Half past two in the afternoon, she rang me back and said the I wanted to see the cardiologist. She told me he was on holidays and um, he'd be back in one week. Would I like to wait and speak to him? I said, fine. So I wrote again. I rang them again. I rang about three or four times. I got one letter in March to say they would be making an appointment. Then I got, finally got an appointment for the 16th of April to see the cardiologist. So I eventually we, I got to see him, was brought up to his office and there was the social worker there, she left and when the doctor was just about to sit down I said to him, I need you to tell me the answer to this, I need to know, did I bury Lorraine without her heart? And he said yes, yes he did. And I said, did you take anything else? We took her lungs. Fanula O'Reilly also wants to know exactly what happened to her son's organs subsequent to post-mortem examination. During the course of the inquiry into the competence or indeed incompetence of the surgeons in Bristol, it emerged that hearts and lungs and other organs had been removed and retained and stored in the hospital. And I thought this was shocking. I remember listening to a report on Newsnight about this and I thought this was absolutely shocking. But it never even dawned on me that this could happen in Our Ladies in Crumlin. I would have no reason to suspect that this could have gone on because I just felt that the staff were so honest and forthright and direct um, in their relationship with ourselves and with the other families that we had got to know intimately, that had an organ been needed or, you know, uh, been necessary to retain, that we would have been approached and our consent would have been obtained because the staff had to approach us about much more distressing issues, um, you know, at much more distressing times for consent for whatever, indeed, life-threatening procedures might be, um, in, you know, necessary on our son. Then... September of this year, I read Mairead Carey's piece in Ireland on Sunday and Charlotte Yates spoke about how her daughter Lorraine's heart and lungs had been removed by Our Lady's Crumlin and they had been retained for a short period and then incinerated. And I remember so well, that was a sunny Sunday morning at the beginning of September and we had just moved into a new house at the time and we were in the middle of decorating and whatever. But I just sat at the kitchen table and froze and this awful chill went through me and I knew, call it my sixth sense, your mother's instinct, I knew 
that this had happened to Michael also. So Monday came and I went to work and that was the longest 24 hours of my life. And Bernard, Bernard had read it as well and it was like your child being dead all over again. You don't know what to say to each other. And Bernard had said, this could never happen, you know, and don't be distressing yourself. But I knew. So I came home from work on the Monday evening and I dialed the number of the hospital and then I jammed the phone down when I got through the switchboard because I I needed to know, but I didn't want to know, if you know what I mean. This went on for maybe 10 days, two weeks, dialing the hospital, then putting it down either before somebody answered or just when they had answered. And finally, one Wednesday, I summoned enough courage to go through with it. And finally, I was put through to the pathology unit and I explained who I was and my child and my child's chart number and address and name and everything. And within two hours, the senior pathologist in the hospital got back on to me. And the pathologist explained at length over the phone what a post-mortem was and what it, you know, what it, in, in, what it necessitated. And he said that very often the removal of an entire organ um, would be necessary in order to establish a cause of death and verify the success of treatment to date. And that this was common practice in most hospitals in the Republic and certainly in most hospitals in Western Europe and the civilised world. And finally, we arrived in the hospital and I met with the pathologist in question and he confirmed my worst fears that Michael's heart had been removed and retained and also his lungs because he said in most cases it is necessary to remove the heart and lungs as there are so many arterial and venal connections between them. And the pathologist said, and I have some further um, information to add, and I couldn't for the life of me imagine what further information he could have to add. But he said Michael's heart and lungs are still in the hospital. The initial reaction was um, frustration. Like it was hard to take on board for a few days and then went in tangle. It's at this stage you don't, I still don't really know how I feel about it. I mean, when I buried my, when we buried Michael five years ago, we thought that was it. Look after the grave. I mean, to come back five years later and have to take down his heart and lungs in this little casket, knowing it in your hands, something else. It's hard, it's hard. I couldn't explain how I feel. I don't really know myself at this stage yet. Confused, very confused. I felt very angry. It was like... Um, it's just... The one thing that nothing... It takes an awful lot to get me angry. But, I mean, the only thing that does make me angry and really angry is anyone to hurt me kid that went to me, any of my children, in any form. And think that someone to come along and took his heart and lungs without even asking, and not to say a word. I mean, to find out five years later that they're still sitting in a shelf in some sort of a jar or container, they won't even... I mean, there's no reason, to know, there's no reason, there's no explanation as to why they were sitting there for five years. I mean, a child is still innocent. It doesn't get any time. All them children do is fight for life. And fight hard for life. And I'd seen them in that ward, and any parent like me in my position, or with sick children, sees them in that ward. The nurses in that hospital see them. The nurses still have to go home in the evening after children dying. After very sick children coming in, children are being rushed up to intensive. They have to go home and lead a normal life. We all know that. We all we, we all know what it's like, how hard them children fight, us as parents to nurses. We all know. 
and think that someone can come along and just, as if for no reason other than say it's for an examination, take them apart, which is bad enough, but not to tell parents they're actually taking these out. And then they come along without even asking parents or telling parents, we have your organs, we've had to take them out for X, Y or Z, what do you want us to do with it? But um, just to incinerate them, to throw them into uh, incinerate them, it's just another way of war to throw them in a fire. I mean, that's basically, to me, that's all it is, it's just throw them in a fire and burn them, make room for another batch. That's what it just seems like to me, that's what done to me. I mean, it's just, it is brutal. She was 14 and a half years old. Uh, she was gorgeous and prejudiced because she was mine. She was gorgeous, she was my friend. Um, a lot of pain and losing her. Like like every mother has, um, but I wouldn't have missed a moment of our life for anything. Um, she was very precious. She was very witty. She had lots of friends, and she was a popular girl. And she had a great relationship with the staff in the hospital too, both doctors and nurses. And and saying again, they were they were very kind to her. I was just so hurt. The hurt. I don't think. I do, do not think that the people in the hospital realise the pain and the, and the hurt it has caused the parents and to siblings as well. I mean, my son was dreadfully... He was 18 years old when Sinead died. He's now 26. And I had to inform him what they did. And he was very angry. He, he was very, very angry. I mean, he's a, he's a grown man. He said and he cried. Um, why? He asked me why. I told them, I don't know. To do this, they need to do this. If they need to do this, this is what they did. But I didn't know they had done this. I didn't know they were going to do this. Um, it's, it's a very painful thing. I came home and I told my family here everybody was devastated. So we decided to make a formal complaint to Our Lady's Hospital. So I contacted the Chief Executive Officer. And on the... Early May it was, probably about two weeks later, Lorraine's dad and I went up to meet him and we wanted to know why did they do this, do this how long they were doing it, what did they do. We wanted more information because the first day I was there I was so upset. There was loads I wanted to ask afterwards but my mind just went blank that day. So um, we talked to them, we asked them why they did it. They kept going away from the point. The whole thing was, well the procedure now is, in, this is 1999, people want to know more now and I said, but... We're the same people as we were in 85. We're the same intelligence as we had in 85. You know, you know, we're not less intelligent because this happened so, so many years ago. But they were trying to make out that people nowadays want to know more information, whereas in 85 they didn't want to know. That's not true. So they said they did have a post-mortem consent form, so I asked to see that, and I have it here. Um, they gave it to me, and they said, this is what parents signed. And I said, that's no good, because that doesn't say anything about organs. And he said, it said tissues on the post-mortem form. And he said, everybody would know tissue meant organs. And I said, well, they've taken organs from my child. I said, I didn't know, and it's happened to my child. I think prior to 1997, that the policy in this and many, uh, many other hospitals was extremely haphazard. And I think that... Uh, parents who are now um, upset greatly by by all of the factors surrounding this controversy would find probably that the two major concerns that have upset them are one the the lack of a specific or the failure to obtain a specific consent and I think that's very understandable that they should feel aggrieved by that but I think perhaps the greatest source of grief for such parents um, must be the fact that 
um, that organs appear to have been dealt with in a very haphazard manner, and that's the term I, I would would use. Um, I think that, as I say, that this is something that the medical profession must, must hold its hands up on, and um, not only at this hospital but right across the board in um, in many countries and certainly in many institutions, even in this country. I believe that all all of us at Our Lady's Hospital for Sick Children regret that while we were following international practice in relation to post-mortems, we, as others, failed to identify the potential of this practice to cause a lot of hurt to the bereaved families until we saw the response of, pa- of parents to the disclosures that came out at the Bristol Inquiry in the United Kingdom. These revelations, I think, at the time and the distress that they have subsequently caused some of the parents of children who have died at Our Lady's Hospital have also been, I think, a cause of great anguish for the nursing, the medical staff and indeed for the minister's staff at this hospital. I I actually can see it day to day in the people I'm working with at the hospital, the tremendous anguish that they're suffering from the feeling that people have been hurt by any practice that might have been carried out here, despite the fact that we might justify that and would justify it on the basis that it was standard procedure. I think equally that most of the parents who have suffered the terrible loss of a child will uh, agree that the doc- doctors and nurses involved with their children have at all times striven to deal very compassionately with their loss. Indeed, I, I feel, and I think I can state clearly, that the death of a child can have a terrible effect on those who care for that child in a hospital. And I think, therefore, there's suffering within the hospital as a result of these allegations, as a result of these revelations and, and, a, and a genuine desire um, that this in some way can be healed. While Professor Drum and the staff of Our Lady's Hospital aspire to reconciliation, many of the bereaved and traumatised parents would see the matter differently. I think their, their view was that people should know on a need-to-know basis, that if Charlotte Yates was the only person who complained, then nobody else should really know about it because there wouldn't be any more complaints. Um, and even from uh, from associates, from friends, um, th- there certainly was a view that what you didn't know wouldn't hurt you and that you were wrong, if you like, to inform people that this may have happened to their children in the past because you were bringing um, trauma on them. As more and more parents contacted the hospital, they have become more accommodating. But certainly... Um, the first families who contacted the hospital were not treated very sympathetically. They were treated as, as troublemakers, effectively. I just feel so betrayed because we had thought that our relationship with the hospital was an excellent one. We had no reason to distrust them, to suspect them of anything underhand at any point. They were so frank and so honest and so forthright at all times and so approachable. And now to learn that the cardiology team with whom we felt we had established such a direct and forthright relationship, that the cardiology team had authorised the removal of our child's heart and lungs without seeking our consent. And God knows we're honest and reasonable and intelligent people. We could have weighed the pros and cons of this, and I'm sure we would have consented to that, but we would have stipulated that our child's heart and lungs would have been returned to us. I just need to know. I have to, it's the only way that I can deal with this. I mean, it doesn't matter how long ago you would have lost your child or how reasons you have lost your child. To lose a child is the most horrific thing in your life. 
but then to hear that this has happened to them, this, it just, it's just dear, fresh in their mind again. It never goes away. The pain never goes away. You carry this child everywhere with you. They never go, you know, they're there with you all the time. No matter where you go, they're there. So therefore, when you hear something like this, it's distraught. You just are distraught. You're so upset to think that um, it has happened. They have done this to your child. There was no respect for her after she died. She ceased to exist for them. But to me, she was still mine. She was my child. In fact, a new consent form has been introduced um, here in the middle of last year before any of this publicity um, appeared, which would seek from parents specific consent for the retention of organs. But once the organs are retained at post-mortem, they need to be retained certainly for a number of weeks uh, in order for a full examination of those organs to be carried out. Following that, it is now the hospital's hope and plan that every three to six months these organs um, will either be buried in a, a, um, a, a site that has been purchased uh, at a local graveyard and the names of the children whose organs are, are, are buried there will be documented. Or, of course, it will be open to the parents who will already have gone through the funeral service for their deceased child to again um, take control of these organs and to deal with them in the manner in which they want to deal with. However, if they choose that following the burial of the child that the organs should be dealt with by the hospital, they will actually be buried in a, um, a grave site. We are already the children of God, but what we are to be in the future has not yet been revealed. All we know is that when it is revealed, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he really is. And here we are as a family, gathered once more on a cold, wintry evening around the grave of our child, five years to the day after his death. Here we are again, looking at a freshly opened grave, having to place part of our child into the cold ground and hear the dull thud of clay been shoveled in over it all over again. And to compound our distress, the unfortunate priest who officiated at the graveside didn't even know what rite to perform. The Catholic Church has no such right to cover these instances. It's just an, a totally absurd situation. And the intensity of our grief and the acuteness of our initial pain and the immediacy of that experience was just so cruelly and unnecessarily reawakened for us by the actions and by the indifference and by the callousness of that hospital. I just feel so betrayed. Trusting in Jesus, the loving Saviour, who gathered children into his arms and blessed the little ones, we now commend this infant, Michael's remains, to that same embrace of love in the hope that he will rejoice and be happy in the presence of Christ. It's hard to describe. I mean, to walk back in, to find out you have to go back. I mean, like any man you go with the intention, you, there's a certain amount of anger there, it has to be. And I went up with the intention of going, get him out, take him out of there, bring him home, the interest. But to walk in and see his little heart and lungs wrapped up there in some sort of little cloth, and... Um, to lift him up 
and put them in a box. It's just the whole feeling that comes over you. I suppose maybe for a man it's different than a woman. Like when a mother cries or what have you, whatever she does, of course she gets angry, cries. Everyone expects that the arms go round her and she's comforted. The husband has to do the same to her. I mean, no man, no man. I don't think any man is going to break down too easy. They take him and they take him off, not to make him. I mean, you've all these feelings inside, and if for no other reason, you have to be strong for your wife, for your partner. If you have kids, you have to be strong for them. You have to be strong. To all of us, you have to. Be, someone, there is someone always relying on you there, and you have to keep the best foot forward for them. I mean, for a father to lose a child. I suppose it is a lot different from than a woman. I mean, you don't you don't let your feelings show as much. They're building up and you're lying there, there's the back of it. I mean, people have come up and say to you how sorry they are. They've said to me how sorry they are, and genuinely sorry, and saying how it should never have happened. I mean, I don't even know what to say when they say that. I just had to say it's one of those things that shouldn't have happened much. There's not a lot you can say. I mean, there's nothing you can say. I mean, it's hard to describe the feelings. May the angels and saints lead you to the place of light and peace, where one day we will be brought together again. Lord Jesus, lovingly receive this little child. Bless him and take him to our Father. We ask this in the name of Jesus the Lord. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.